outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 165. Today in the show, we're joined by Aaron Warbidden, a DIY public land hunting specialist and a member of the Midwest Whitetail team. And we're going into great detail on his public land journey and the tactics he uses now to kill mature bucks on heavily pressured land. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we're joined by Aaron Warburton, an Iowa bow hunter and a longtime member of the team over at Midwest Whitetail. And Aaron has found a niche in the hunting world as a public land bow hunting specialist. And in recent years over on the Midwest Whitetail web and TV shows, his public land exploits, they've, they've gotten quite a lot of interest, him and, and a team of other guys that are doing this. And Aaron and this group of folks over there that are focusing on this public land stuff, they have without a doubt proven that killing big mature bucks on public land, even in states like Iowa, where you'd expect there to be a lot of non-resident hunting pressure on those public lands, you know, it is definitely possible. You can go to these places without owning any land, without leasing any land, and you can have success. So as you're going to come to here, if you haven't been watching what they've done over on Midwest Whitetail, they are absolutely getting it done. So today... I get to chat with Aaron in detail about his background as a public land hunter, the different philosophies and tactics he uses to find and kill bucks in these situations, and particularly interesting, we get to dive into the specifics of a much-talked-about situation. Uh, If you follow Midwest Whitetail, you're familiar with this spot of public land where Aaron and a couple of his friends were hunting that they referred to as the buck nest, where they're seeing... A, a lot of really really nice bucks back on public land and so we get to dive deep into how we found this spot how they approached it how they scouted it how they hunted it their plans for this year very very interesting stuff i think you're going to enjoy this episode but uh before we get to that i do have my co-host mr dan johnson with me for the intro here and i want to offer fair warning if you're new to the podcast and if you're <laughs> If you're right, if you're not interested in hearing rambling conversations here at the beginning here about screaming kids or hunting pronghorn or pack rafting in one of the largest wilderness areas in the lower 48, uh, if you don't want to hear brownie about that points. kind of stuff, yeah, brownie points, 
if you don't want to hear about those things, you can fast forward a little bit to get to our interview with Aaron. But uh, what do you say, Dan? Should we get into these? These are fun, rambling intro thoughts. Yeah, uh, and I like the warning, but don't fast forward because, <laughs> dude, life is like life in general is what's interesting, right? I mean, we could sit here and talk about deer all day long, but you know, it's it's life. You know what happens in life that is uh, that I think is is different than what it, everything else that's out there. I 100% agree. We, uh, I don't know. I don't know if our lives are that interesting, but we certainly try to tell the honest truth at least about what's going on. (laughs) Right. It's a normal life though. Like, uh, I don't know how many people's dogs crapped on their carpet last night uh, while they were sleeping, but this morning at five when I woke up and went out to the kitchen to make coffee, there was about six little dog turds all over this brand new rug that my wife bought. And, uh, I got mad and I said swear words. Yeah, <laughs> the dog. Right. And I cleaned it up and do you, then. Do, uh, do you do you remember that one time where you oh, yeah. accidentally ate dog food and didn't realize it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up again. A high point in Dan Johnson's life. Hey man, I've, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I've I've had to climb out of the gutter to get where I'm at today. You know, I, I like you know Don Higgins, our guest last week. He he said that he just he lives in the gutter. So if you scrape the bottom of the barrel, that's where you, right. I feel like that's where we find you too, Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's where I hang out. Those are my people. <laughs> Those are your people. So what what's what's new in the gutter today? Well, in the gutter. Uh, all right, so. Me and my wife never really had a honeymoon, and she is like... Well, no wonder like she a, doesn't let you hunt. Come on, Right. Man. She She's a wine freak, right? She loves wine. And so today, I just bought plane tickets uh, for... It, it's not this year, but for uh, summer of next year uh, for Napa Valley. So That's awesome. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surprise her on her birthday, which is next week. I'm having a surprise birthday party for her. Um, so when she gets home from work, a whole, all, of, all of her friends, all of our friends and family are going to be at the house. And we are going to uh, surprise her. And then I'm going to surprise her with these Napa Valley uh, air, airline tickets uh, for June of next year. And she, the ba- she might be so excited that the baby pops out. <laughs> well, get that done and over with. Right, absolutely. Man, you weren't kidding about the brownie points. Yeah, gotta get gotta get the brownie points, and then that should get me a secure foothold for about just about any western trip that I want to take next. That'll be real good. Now, one thing I'm a little worried about, though, you said this is going to be a surprise. Aren't you worried about her listening to this episode? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> she doesn't even listen to my podcast. Oh man, that's cool. That's a good plan. Yeah, a very good yep. plan. So, so brownie party, points. brownie yeah. points. Oh, I, I bought her a couch too. Dang. Yeah, that should get you some October hunts this year. Then I'd say. Yeah, I don't know about Come that, on. man. Come uh, on, it's just a couch, man. Right? You should see our couch. It has like Kool Aid stains <laughs> all over it, just like milk stains, like kid, like. The other day, I watched. And that was my all son. before you guys even had kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mark, throwing in the low blows. I like it. But so sorry, continue. The other day, we had pizza. You know, it's one of those days where, as a parent, you'll have days like this, Mark, where you will. That's so like, weird. By the life, 
What? To, that you're making that reference that I'm going to have. You're going to have days. days like this where everybody's busy. The only thing that you know time will allow, you're so tired, you're okay, screw it. Let's just put a frozen pizza in the oven. The kids eat the frozen pizza, and if your son is two or my son's two, he doesn't eat like with a fork and little bites. He takes a pizza, piece of pizza, puts it in his hand, makes a fist, and then like punches himself in the face with it <laughs> repeatedly, and that's how he eats, right? So, uh, so he get all over his face, right, and all over his hands, and we always take his shirt off when he eats because he gets it all over his clothes, so, you know. <laughs> So that's how he eats. So I, I pick him up off the table and I set him down on the kitchen or on the dining room uh, floor and he runs out. He gets away from me and he runs out. I'm like, Mac, no, get back here. Stop. No, no, no. And he runs right onto the couch just like an airplane lands <laughs> and just smears everything that was on his stomach and hands and face all over the couch. I'm like, Jesus, son of a bitch. <laughs> and and then he looks up with looks up at me with a smile and I'm just like I don't know what to do right now go to timeout or pick up I don't know you know just like <laughs> so uh, that's my life that's your life man oh hey on the deer on the deer note though yeah this weekend you know I always talk about the trail camera switch yeah that's coming this weekend you're gonna head out and shift them to the fall range spots. Yep, shift them for fall range, and then I'm going to take part of something I like to call stay out September. Yes. Which means don't go into your hunting property for the month of September. And, you know, uh, yeah. It's been kind of nice. I've had like a, a, a doubly imposed stay out since mid-July on my main Michigan properties right. now because of my right. trip. It'll be the least pressure that that area has ever been because usually I'm in there all in, in August dealing with food plots and hanging last minute stuff but i was forced to get all that stuff done super early this year so holyfield's gonna be in your living room when you get back <laughs> that'd be nice hopefully he's at least leaving on living on the property that's right that's what i'm hoping <coughs> excuse me so so wait a second now all right i go to your instagram and i see all these cool things you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay and you did some antelope hunting I did. And I was extremely jealous. And I, I, I see all these Instagram updates of you getting close and then, then the antelope running away. So <laughs> yeah. fill us in. What what was uh, antelope hunting like for you? It was like that, getting close and then watching antelope <laughs> run away. <laughs> oh, man, I, I had a ton of fun. And I only got to hunt one day. So I've only had one day hunting, and yet I'll get more in um, later when I start my whitetail hunt. Um, but... It, it was totally like no preparation whatsoever. I knew nothing of the area at all. I just found some public land that looked good on the map based on the very little I know about antelope. And I had a free day where I didn't have to do any work and Kylie had some other things going on. So I just drove out there in the morning and I, it basically was a, was a mixture of state land and BLM land and looked relatively flat with a few rolling hills and grassy, sagebrushy type cover. Uh, so that seemed like good antelope habitat to me. And I get my stuff, I hike up this first hill that kind of leads up to this flat area on top. And as soon as I crest that rise, 
there's a big antelope buck. Like, I hadn't even been hunting for 10 minutes, and I had already seen my first antelope buck, my first pronghorn. I didn't even know if I'd see any at all. I had no idea if there were pronghorn even there. I was just hoping, hoping there'd be some goats. And there's a buck. So, and that was basically the start of, like, a whirlwind day. Like, it was so much fun. So, I see this buck. He's looking right at me, though. He's probably a couple hundred yards away. So, I drop back down the way, came back down that hill, and I stay, I keep that hill in between me and him and circle way around and then I get all the way around up behind him because he's kind of sitting, he's halfway down another hill. So I stay behind my hill, then get up behind the other one, and I get all the way to behind him, and I keep I keep on sneaking to the edge and peeking over to see where he is, and I'm keeping tabs. And um, I get to within like 70 yards probably, and he's bedded down there on the side of this hill now. And yeah. so at that point, I'm like, holy crap, like is this actually going to happen? I've been hunting pronghorn for half an hour, and I'm about to shoot one. Um I knock an arrow, I drop my pack, grab my rangefinder, I'm checking stuff, I start crawling, um, just close the distance on him, and then I feel that wind shift. The wind had been kind of like quartering to me, and so cutting across my face, so I was trying to angle so I would be able to be within range of him just before my wind would get towards him, um, and unfortunately that wind shifted about eh, 45 degrees, went right to him, and you saw him all of a sudden stand up, and I get my bow ready. He's still probably like 65 yards away. And um, and I wasn't going to shoot an antelope unless it was pretty darn close just because of the fact that, you know, as we talked about I don't know, last week or two weeks ago or whenever it was, you know, I'm shifting up my shooting process, my whole um, – I'm kind of relearning a new way to shoot my bow. So I really want to – I don't want to shoot any long shots early on. I want to be safe and make sure I get a good shot. So 65 yards is too far away for me right now. So he stands up, and I'm looking at him, and – he didn't like look at me or look at my in my direction, but just all of a sudden, bam! Like a bolt of lightning, he just just sprinted away full speed and went just running off forever. And I just I stayed still, and he stopped every hundred yards, stop and look back in my direction, and I just stayed frozen all the way till I don't know like five minutes maybe until he he disappeared over another rise, and then I just sprinted. I sprinted all the way across this wide open flat expanse for as long as I could. Finally got over this next rise, and there's this little basin. There's a water hole down the bottom and some cattle, and I could see him pretty far away now, but angling back into this other, like, kind of draw heading up behind these other hills. So, now I'm like, all right, maybe I can cut him off going that direction. So I start running the other way, and, um, man, I, I absolutely wore myself out in this day. I put on more than 10 miles in the boots, lots of ups and downs, and, um, well, long story short on that, I try to cut him off. I come over another hill, and here's 10 more bucks uh, just over the edge of property, the property line. So they're on the private side. And so I'm not, I won't walk you through the entire day, but that was like basically the day. I was in Antelope the yeah. whole day. I had three stalks. So I had that first stalk that I got within like 70 or 65 yards, and then he winded me. I had another one where um, I was making a move to another group of bedded antelope I saw across the way, and I was going through these little ditches and gullies down the bottom spot here. And right. as I came over a little bump, I saw the back of an antelope. And then eventually, as I got, I kept sneaking in, getting closer. And then that there ended up being six bucks there down this bottom, and I got really close to them. I had them at probably 55 yards, but it was super windy, and I'm sitting there on my knees, I'm ranging them, and at this point they had they'd seen me. That's I mean. I'm sure you when you were hunting muleys slash you had some antelope with you in Nebraska, I'm sure you saw this. It's like everyone says they have incredible eyesight, but it's like you don't actually feel that until you're actually there and like 
not, even if you're not moving at all, like you can be completely stock yeah. still and they just see you no matter what. Um, peg you. Oh yeah. So it, 55 yards, they kind of knew I was there. They knew something was there, but they weren't totally freaked out. But like one of them would be looking at me, the others would be feeding and they'd move off and I'm sitting there. I'm like, gosh, it's a 55 yard shot. You know, a lot of guys would take that shot going after antelope or something out west but i just i just didn't want my first shot with this new shot sequence and shot process to be a long poke like that in the wind so um so i watch them they go over a little rise then i do like some super crab crawling to try to close the distance and when i get over that next little rise right to the edge of it and peek over there's nothing nothing there yeah and they had booked it and so i had one more stalk like that later in the day um same deal i got close not quite close enough but um i saw a lot of antelope had a lot of fun and it was public land, free to anyone to use. First time I'd ever set foot there, and I had like an incredible hunt. So it was just a great reminder to me of how achievable something like that is, you know? Now, yeah, I, I did get lucky that I picked a good a good spot, but um, man, anyone can do it. It was awesome. It was so much fun. Yeah, I definitely want to get out. I think that's something that me and you need to do. That'd be a blast. Together, to do an antelope hunt in a couple years. I think that'd be a lot of fun. And there's places to do it that aren't too terribly far away from you. I mean, we could do like you did Nebraska or South Dakota or all the way out to Montana or Wyoming, but it, it's not too bad. Yeah, I don't care where it's at. I just want to go and hunt stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> super pretty country. You know, I think it was kind of right. like what oh, you were absolutely. dealing with in the sand hills. These rolling kind of golden amber hills of grass, huge vistas, like the horizon's never ending. It was just... Right. It was super right. cool. So, and I think we had a talk about that uh, a while ago. You know, it's like mountains are awesome, but at the same time, there's something about the prairie, man, that's just different. But yeah. at the same time, breathtaking. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love, I love the plains. It's yeah, very, very cool. I, what I found is like, I think the one thing that both of them have in common, those two different kind of ecosystems. Very, we're generalizing here, but wide open space, big views. Mm-hmm big skies i love just being able to see off into the distance um i really like that rather than being hemmed in deep in a forest there's something cool about being in a forest too but i like those views so right absolutely man. yeah man it was super cool and now um i'm heading out in a couple days so when people start listening to this i'll actually be out there i'm heading out on a four day backpacking and pack rafting trip into the bob marshall wilderness in northern montana oh wow so that's going to be quite an adventure. We're going to be paddling up this lake into the mountains and then getting out, packing up the rafts, hiking, I don't know, 15 or more miles up this river up into the core of the wilderness and then spending it up there and then rafting our way back down, um, down all the way back out. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be pretty cool. We're going to do a bunch of fly and fishing all the way. and The wife is going to be with you? The wife is not going to be with me. She's, oh, um, okay. Yeah, we decided this one was going to be a little bit too much for, uh, you know, her being pregnant and everything. So she's going to hang out in town, and uh, my buddy Andy, I don't know if you've met Andy yet, but Andy is actually flying out here, and he's going to join me for it. Andy May? Not Andy May, sorry, Andy Bradley. Oh, gotcha. Andy Bradley. Gotcha. One of my gotcha. bu- another buddy of mine in Michigan. So Perfect. Yeah, man, so that's my story. And, and then that I get back fun. from that, get back from that, and like three days later, it's Alaska. And then whitetails. So, man, it's going to be a whirlwind. Yeah. You, you're going to be busy. Yeah. Very. 
Like I, 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 soak and, it in, man. Soak it in. Yeah. And in no way can I complain at all because it's like the coolest oh, yeah. schedule stuff. But it is like a little overwhelming. Like I'm a little bit like holy smokes. There's so much going on. Um, like I ha- I have not been able to like put as much time in planning any one of these as I wish I could. Yeah. Um, so like this backpacking trip has been like thrown or this Bob Marshall trip has been like thrown together all last minute. And then I get back for three days and then like try to like get everything packed and ready to go to Alaska. And then I'm there. I get back on the 9th, and then that day I get back, I'm just going to grab the camper and drive across the state to where I'm going to try to whitetail hunt. And then I'm, I've budgeted myself four days to try to kill a whitetail and a pronghorn in Montana. And then i got to drive into North Dakota, and I have four more days to try to get a whitetail there. And all I've done, I've never seen any of these places. I've only just looked at maps. But I spent like three hours last night studying maps, trying to pick the best public pieces and... dialing in where I think the best access points will be to them. And so I've got, like, I focused on Montana last night. I've got, like, five different sections of public land that I think have potential. And I'm probably just going to drive out there the first morning or first night whenever I get there and just glass and try to pick whichever one looks to be the most promising. And then it's just, like, learn on the fly. It's going to be one of those kinds of Septembers, just learning on the fly. Hey, that's that's part of the... uh... It's, I guess that, that all that's intriguing in a way, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be a learning experience for sure. And like the, the adventure, the, a lot of adventure, just like a lot of unknowns. So right. Right. One way or another, I'll learn something. I don't know if I'm going to fill any tags, but I'll learn something. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, you might learn where not to hunt. That's true. That's true. Hopefully that's not what I learned, but it, the worst case scenario. Yes. <laughs> that's right. So I don't know. Anything else you want to cover before we uh, kick this over to the main interview? No, man. I, you know, I'm just a dad with two and a half kids. <laughs> I'm a dad. Well, I'm a future dad with about half a kid. Yeah, half in the a kid. in the oven. And uh, yeah. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's shut this intro down. Next week, I think. Uh, We've got a good guest on on uh, on tap for next week that you'll be able to be with us for the whole one. You weren't able to join us for today's interview because of some scheduling things on my end, but uh, thanks for hopping on for the intro, buddy. Mark, it's always a pleasure to <laughs> to be in your digital presence. Well, you flatter me. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. All right, let's uh, let's stop while we're still barely ahead and. <laughs> We're going to kick it over to our sick story, and then after that, we will get Aaron on the line. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Montana Wild's Travis Botten, who tells us about an elk hunt that became something more. So it was October, and it was the beginning of rifle season. The plan was to take my dad out on his first elk hunt to hopefully fill his tag. The conditions were perfect. We had a little bit of fresh snow, and right away we found fresh bull tracks. And so my dad and I, we just started following the tracks through the snow, hoping we'd catch up to the elk. And we actually caught a glimpse of a bull looking at us through the timber that we could see about 150 yards away. And unfortunately, we bumped the bull, so we just continued to follow the tracks. And my dad hit this patch of trees where it actually stopped him and he was kind of I guess discouraged on trying to break through the brush and potentially you know scare the the bulls away any further 
and I ended up finding a new pathway. And as I cleared the trees, I could see a black on white moving through the forest about 100 yards away. And instantly I thought it was a bear, but it had a long two-foot tail. So I dropped to a knee. I instantly knew it was a wolf. And one shot later, uh, the wolf dropped in his tracks, and I had filled my first wolf tag ever. On Travis's hunt, which you can see on Montana Wild's Vimeo page, he was wearing Sika Stormfront jacket and mountain pants. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right, with us on the line now is Aaron Warburton. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I've um, for a long, for pretty good long time now. I've been following what you've been doing over at Midwest Whitetail, and have seen a pretty cool progression with what you've been doing both from a content standpoint and from a hunting standpoint uh, especially with a lot of the public land stuff going on so i'm glad we can finally connect and talk more you know it's just been kind of quick highs and hellos at shows or emails so uh i'm glad we could do this thank you for making the time yeah no problem i'm looking forward to it yeah definitely and i'm sure you've got the the itch that i've got right now these these late august days are getting me pretty pretty anxious to get in the whitetail woods you feeling the same way Oh, yeah, we've already been out, oh, I mean, between three and five times a week for the last month or so, you know, whether we should be or not. We've still been going <laughs> out there and, uh, and you know, getting cameras out and scouting some new areas, trying to plot some tree stand locations for the fall and checking out some new public lands that, uh, you know, have just became available in some uh, different spots. Because we try to keep a we try to keep a close eye on that all the time as well. You know these states um, sometimes purchase extra pieces. You know um, depending on the year and what their goals are and what their budgets are and whenever they buy them, we like to go and check out the new stuff. So yeah, we've been we've been doing a lot of that here lately. That's exciting to, to find one of those spots and be one of the first people to get in there. That's always a good situation. Yeah, sometimes they forget to sign them for a couple of years. <laughs> And it's pretty uh, pretty good hunting, as you can imagine. Yeah. But uh, yeah, any any time we get to get on new ground, which luckily for us hunting public land, there's there's a good amount of it if you know if you're willing to drive a few hours to get there. So yeah. we're uh, we're never short on new spots and adventurous scouting missions. That's awesome. Well, I want to dig into a lot of that stuff you mentioned. You know, finding all these public land spots and the scouting or doing all that stuff. But I guess before we get there. Um, can you just give us the the 101 on on how you got to this point with Midwest, Midwest Whitetail and then maybe what you're doing now today too? Okay. Well, I mean, my story is, is pretty basic. I'm a redneck from northern Missouri from a little bitty town of about 900 to 1,000 people called Paris. And uh, when ever since I was real young, we were hunting and fishing in the woods. As you can imagine, rural community like that, that's sort of part of your lifestyle for a lot of families, and mine was no different. So growing up, we were always in the woods hunting stuff and toting cameras around. And, uh, you know, I mean, from an early, early age, like 9, 10 years old, the first hunting videos that I saw, this is kind of what I wanted to do. So early on, you know, we had video cameras floating around, old you know, tape cameras and stuff. And I think my dad still got a few of them in his house that are just sitting back there collecting dust. But that's uh, basically started when I was very young. 
and just slowly progressed um, into what I'm doing now. And that's uh, that's my passion. It's it's filming, you know, hunts and trying to really trying to recreate content that the average hunter can relate to. That's kind of what that's what drives us. Um, you know, specifically us here in the office and the public land guys. We all sort of have had the same interest in that regard. Whatever we're doing, I mean, whether it's helping somebody on private or or you know, hunting private occasionally or hunting public, that's what we're always trying to do is just relate to the average guy. So, um, you know, because that's who we are. That's where that's where I came from. So I'd like uh I'd like to think that I relate to those people or try to anyway. Um but yeah, the whole video thing started at a young age and just progressed through it and eventually met some folks in the outdoor industry going to turkey calling contests and stuff and just sort of grew the network from there and uh and always was involved in video editing even through college and and doing other things when I was younger I've always stayed involved in video editing and and uh, doing stuff kind of freelance for the hunting industry for a while before I started here I've been I've been at Midwest Whitetail now for uh I think six years started here in 2011 and been here ever since and that started as an internship is that right yep started as an internship as most of our employees um at midwest whitetail did start the as an intern um except for greg he came on full-time in 2010 and then i was an intern with four other fellows in 2011 that's awesome and uh and so what what's officially your role now what exactly do you have your 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 hands on oh i'm an i'm a video producer first and foremost uh I just work on all kinds of projects from, from, uh, you know, different accounts and stuff that we have with, uh, sponsors and brands that support our show. Um, right now I'm uh, starting to work on the Cabela's whitetail season series, which is something that, um, I do just for them in their website every year. And then, uh, we also produce lots of how to and gear tips for their YouTube channel and some of their other stuff that they have going on in house. And I, I kind of head up all the the Cabela's accounts that we have um, as far as that goes. And then uh, I manage the, the office here at Midwest Whitetail. We've got three employees, including me, and three interns this fall. So it's going to be a pretty hectic place, but I kind of oversee operations and make sure that uh, that the interns are, you know, on the straight and narrow and we're, we're getting work accomplished and, and that sort of thing. It gets real hectic, but uh, oh, I bet. it is definitely a lot of fun. Man, you you guys have just have so much different content coming out. I mean, I, I can't imagine trying to keep track of it all because, like you said, you've got things going on for Cabela's. You guys do the Chasing November show kind of later in the year that's kind of that more produced version of the live hunts you're putting out for all the different shows. And then, holy smokes, I mean, I don't know how you keep your head straight during the season or at any point when you have so many. And then the turkey stuff in the spring, uh, how do you how do you remember what you have for breakfast in the morning after all that? Uh, it's pretty it's pretty tough. We drink a lot of coffee, <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we don't have your average work hours. Um, that, may, that may have something to do with why I'm not married yet. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we uh, we stay extremely busy, and and uh, we have the the freedom to work here, you know, at night when uh, you can't legally hunt. So we we work here at night most of the time. Um, that's when we get most of our 
editing done throughout the fall and our, our uh, uploading our web content stuff to the different sites that we manage, including Miss Midwest Whitetail. Nice. But, uh, yeah, we spend, we spend a ton of time in the field. Hunting during the day, work during the night. That's a pretty good schedule. I think a lot of guys would like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and that's and that's one of the things that gets gets us a lot of intern applicants every year. Yeah. But then once they get here and they realize, you know, two hours of sleep on average every night for a month and a half straight, eventually starts to wear on you <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, that can. But I can see that being pretty brutal for sure. Um, yeah, it's grueling, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And I think to something you alluded to earlier. I think that adding what you guys have been doing from a public land standpoint has been a really great way to counterbalance some of the things that Bill's doing and some of the other guys on the team um, that have a bunch of land in a great state, heavily managed. And that, that's fun to see, but sometimes not everybody can, can relate to that. So I think you guys have done a really nice job of, of, of showing what Bill's doing, which is amazing, and people love seeing that, but then also seeing what you guys are doing, which seems much more within reach of you know the average guy or girl. So um you guys are doing great work. Big props to you guys for that. I've enjoyed following along, and um, I guess related to that public land aspect, you mentioned that you know that's a lot of what you're doing now from a hunting standpoint. When did that start for you? Uh, you've been hunting public land for a pretty long time, is that right? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I've been hunting public since I since I started hunting when I was real young. The first buck that I ever killed with my bow, I think I was twelve. Um, and I could be off a year one way or the other there, but I believe I was 12, and that buck actually walked off of public land with another one and onto the edge of private land that I had permission to hunt at the time and uh, and uh, got a shot at him and killed him. So we hunted that, that public land back home a ton when I was younger. We spent a ton of time on it all the time, and, we, and back in those days it was much easier to get permission on private land, so we also had lots of private land to hunt, but... You know, when that permission started drying up as I got older into my teenage years, hunting that public started to become more of a priority because, you know, I, I didn't want to quit hunting. So that was sort of the option I was left with in that particular situation. So started hunting more public and, and uh, got up here to Iowa in 2011 and just kept on kept on doing the same thing, you know. I mean, I've and and the other guys in the office are the same way greg came from uh, eastern nebraska and he hunted public there for many years before coming here and then uh and zach fernbaugh um uh, from out in ohio he he hunted public a lot out there with his friends and family before coming here so it was, it was really just a natural fit for uh, all of us and of course the interns that come here and uh want to be in the woods all the time most of them don't have access so it makes it nice when we can just go out to a place where we're all equal and have a level playing field and can sort of work as a team. It, it really uh, works out good. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a good situation, especially to your point. There's, If you're willing to drive, there, there definitely is quality public land hunting available in a lot of states. I mean, especially by you guys, there's, there's some exceptional quality from a public standpoint. But really, if you're willing to, to put in the work and time looking for it, you can find places most areas of the country that you can get out there at least and have a good experience um i'm I'm curious though you know in in recent years i know you've killed and the other guys on the team have killed some really nice bucks on public land um and i know 
pretty recently, the last couple of years, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last couple of years, I think you've been pretty heavily influenced by guys like Dan Infault, you know, guys that we follow and learned a lot from too. Um, did you see a dramatic change in your success after you started using some of these different tactics, some of these betting area focuses and some of those scouting tactics that Dan talks about, or were you still having the same type of success before that? And this is just changing a little bit of what you do. Um, we had some success before, but it's definitely helped. And uh, one reason why I gravitate to Dan so much is because I relate very much to his situation throughout his life, I feel like. You know, and uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have listened to those podcasts that you've done with Dan. They're awesome. And uh, and learning from him, you know, when he was younger, he sort of just hunted hunted him to death. You know, he, he was just out there all the time yeah. and eventually would would quote unquote dumb into one you know and that's that's kind of what the way we were prior to that knowledge we we spent i'm thinking you know throughout my younger years and leading up to that point before we started concentrating on bed hunting we spent most of our focus on scouting still but we scouted a lot of doe bedding areas you know we we always tried to find local doe groups on these public lands and then we would pretty much surround our entire strategy around those spots during the rut now we we had success doing that just hunting strictly during the rut you know all day every day for the entire month of november that's the advantage we have here in iowa is you can bow hunt throughout the entire rut um so we did have some success but since the bedding tactics have come along it sort of started flipping on these light bulbs in these other times of the year especially and uh and yeah, it definitely, definitely helped and it's had a big impression on me for sure. Yeah. So, so for those who maybe aren't familiar with some of these high level things we're talking about, can you kind of tell us what were those light bulb moments for you? What were these, you, we've talked about, we've kind of alluded to some betting type stuff, but can you just give us a little more detail specifically what these things were that you started focusing more on that, that made these things start working better for you? Well, a lot of the, a lot of it was wind based buck betting. Um, when I started figuring out that a lot of bucks bed with the wind to their advantage, we were able to, to kind of, uh, confirm that theory very quickly. Whereas a lot of folks won't be able to do that. And the reason being is because we have so many years worth of footage here in the office. We have so much whitetail footage from great pro staff that we've got all over the country. You know, we've got trail camera images on you know, millions of them. You're hearing it on our servers. So when I started learning that stuff from Dan about how a buck beds, I started, you know, checking back into all these previous experiences whenever we, whenever we would encounter a mature buck or film a mature buck, you know, we started looking at all that previous footage and then starting to, to kind of think where that buck's coming from or where he's going to as far as his bedding locations go. And after, after doing a bunch of that, it started making sense to us. So, I mean, that, that was really when the light bulb came on. I heard about it all at first. We actually did a podcast with Greg Litzinger, I believe. Yep. And uh, he's, a, he's a killer from up in the northeast part of the country, up in New Jersey, yeah. I think. And uh, he, started, uh, he started bringing up those tactics in a podcast. So we started researching more into it. And I think uh, the betting stuff aside... The, the part about whitetail hunting 
um, that it really intrigues me is it's very situational. No matter what you do, I mean, you can you can hunt here in Iowa on a piece of public land and drive 10 miles up the road to another piece that hunts completely different. And it's just because those deer are so adaptable, you know, and they use that habitat in each one of these areas differently. So being adaptable as a whitetail hunter, never being become set in your ways, so to speak, is going to help you kill more deer. And people hear that as a blanket statement all the time, but it is 100% true. Yeah. Don't ever... Don't ever think that, you know, your one method, you might have one method that does work, but if, if you want to continue to learn more, especially learn more about deer, then start trying some, some other things and uh, try some of these other off-the-wall tactics that you hear. I mean, the bedding stuff is definitely, it, it's, it's definitely proved to, to help us out a bunch, you know, and, and the light bulb moment, I guess. We, we, we already had a lot of confidence into it going into last year, but the light bulb moment for a lot of the viewers happened at the buck nest video uh-huh. that uh, a lot of folks I'm sure have seen on the Midwest Whitetail show. You know, up to, the, up to that point, everybody kind of looked at us like we were crazy. But then when all these bucks started standing up out of these beds, they're like, <laughs> holy, holy cow, maybe these guys actually are onto something. But yeah, uh, yeah. It's pretty ridiculous. That was some pretty ridiculous footage and encounters you guys had there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, so a couple things. Number one, I I agree with you one hundred and fifty percent on what you just said there about the fact that you just always need to keep an open mind and never get set in your ways. I mean, if there's anything I've learned from doing this podcast and talking to so many different successful hunters, it's that there there's a thousand different ways to skin the cat. You know, there's so many different ways to go about hunting mature bucks. And, and I, I'm a big believer in, in take in every single different opinion and perspective as you can, and then run that through the filter of your own circumstances and find whatever pieces and parts you can apply to your own. Um, so it's, it's great to hear that you've got a similar philosophy on that. And obviously it's working for you taking some things you've learned from your own experiences, some things from these guys you've talked to, whether it be Dan or Greg or Bill or whoever, and kind of, kind of mix it all together to get the Aaron strategy, which is always pretty cool to see. Um, now before we get to the buck nest, you talked about the wind based bedding. Um, so this yep. being how wind direction might influence where buck chooses to bed. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and what you found after you started looking at your pictures and your videos, you know, what was the correlation there? Um, or what was the aha specifically with the wind and how it influenced bedding? Well, we started looking through our pictures and we noticed that like every once in a while, say you're getting a, a buck, uh, pretty regular on your trail camera. I'll just use this as an, ex- as an example. Say you got a buck that's living on your property, you're getting him pretty regular on one trail camera, and a couple of days and a matter of weeks, you get him in daylight. You know, almost doing something a little bit differently than he did the, the, the other times that you picked him up. Well, the more we got to looking at those images and trying to measure, like, daylight activity and all this, we, we got to thinking, you know, maybe he's not necessarily just being more daylight active that day. Maybe he's betting closer to the dadgum camera. You know, I mean... <laughs> Maybe because that would make total sense. Why is he showing up there in the middle of the night, five nights out of seven, and then, boom, all of a sudden he's here, you know, at an hour before dark? Well, what we found is that a lot of times it depends on their bedding location. You know, those mature bucks don't, for the, for the most part, they don't move very far during daylight. So if you're going to intercept them, it makes sense to be hunting close to their bedding location. 
if you can start to predict where those are as far as wind direction goes, then you're obviously going to have more success, in my opinion. But, yeah, we started looking at those pictures and looking back at all that footage and, and everything and then comparing historical weather data and, and going and using Wonderground to do that. But that was what we were noticing is a lot of these areas, not all of them, but a lot of these areas, bucks would bed in a specific area with a specific wind. And a, a lot of a lot of guys you'll hear talking about how bucks will move with the wind to their advantage. I don't know enough about that to say if that's true or not, just from my observations. But I will say that theory could come from wind-based bedding. For example, if a buck is bedded in an area on a northwest wind, and you and every time there's a northwest wind, you know you see him moving through that area that you're hunting near. It may be because he's bedded in that area. Right. Maybe because the wind is putting him there yep. to bed, not necessarily to move. Oh. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. And 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 basically, what I think you're saying too is that a buck is using the wind. When we're saying that the wind is is kind of influencing them to bed in a specific place, it's because they can use that wind to their favor while they're bedded. So correct me if I'm if I'm yeah. wrong on this, but I think most scenarios that I see or hear about, you've got a buck that's bedded in a location where he can look out in front of him and he's got the wind to his back. So he can smell behind him, he can see ahead of him, and that kind of gives him 300, relatively 360 degrees of safety. Um, is that kind of the same thing that you're either seeing or theorizing? Yep, 100%. And, and when you think about it, it all makes total sense. When, when is a mature buck most vulnerable? It's when he's laying down during the day, not moving. I mean, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, have been walking through the woods and jumped a mature buck almost like a rabbit out of a brush pile, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, right next to him. And uh, the reason is is because that's when, they're, that's when they're at their most vulnerable point. So if they're not using their senses, to their ultimate advantage throughout the day when they're bedded, then uh, they're going to be in trouble. I mean, they're going to get killed. And the interesting thing, uh, and Dan's talked about this a lot too, but they, they always watch that back trail. Whenever they go into a bed or a bedding area, they always flip around and they're watching down a back trail of some, some sort. They're monitoring that somehow, and it makes total sense. You know, when they walk in there, they're laying down scent. How is a predator going to come in and get them? A lot of times, that predator is going to track them into that bed. And if they're if they're turned around and they're watching down that trail that they walked in on, they're going to see a coyote or a bobcat or a mountain lion or whatever it is. Or, you know, they're going to see any of those predators coming down the the trail, coming at them, and they can escape. Most of the best bedding areas that we find are set up like that they've got cover to back wind coming over the top of them and then they're looking back down that uh, trail and uh the best locations offer great escape routes for them yeah you know where they can just pop out of there and then not hardly be seen and be gone in a way but every time and, and like i mentioned habitat and terrain's gonna gonna dictate how they they bed and how they use an area so to speak but the one consistent thing is they're always bedded with one to pack. I mean, if you find a, a buck bed, you know, with uh, and and look at how it's shaped, you can usually tell which direction he's laying by uh, by looking at the shape of the bed. Yeah. And 
is a lot of your October hunting strategy now revolved around knowing that you guys have, I don't know, 15 different potential buck bedding locations you guys have scouted out now, and you know the the given winds that hypothetically a buck would use them. So it's October 17th maybe, and a cold front came through, and you've got a northwest wind. You know that there are three different beds that potential beds that maybe there's a buck in there and you'd make a move based on that is a, is that a lot of what your strategy looks like now yep it sure does and the strategy has has definitely changed because now we don't necessarily always hunt with the wind to our advantage we're looking just to hunt a buck with the wind to his advantage and that's another one of those kind of general statements that you hear a lot but that's what we mean is the wind to the buck's bedding advantage yeah yep so you're not actually though you know some people when they say that they're talking about the buck when it's on the move so saying like you mentioned earlier like a buck wanting to move with the wind in his face or quartering to him you're more so more so concerned about how it influenced where he beds and then that is that's that's probably a little bit of a safer bet as far as a variable a better chance of that being accurate versus how he moves would you say so yep yeah, and we've learned some interesting stuff just in the last few years when we've when we've kind of switched our strategy to this. I mean, it's it's really changed how you look at how you look at deer hunting. Period. Um, when you really when you really commit to this, and see, a lot of people are still real skeptical about it, but uh, and and they go out and they have trouble finding the beds and everything. But when you really commit to learning how they bed and how they survive during the day you're gonna you're gonna figure out so much about deer and deer hunting it's it's unbelievable um just just how deer will will use your property you know betting with the wind to their advantage like that you know where where that where's the pressure at on your property and uh you know where are the bedding areas don't just look at don't just look at these little pockets of cover like they're a bedding area that you got to bounce around and hunt on all sides because the deer may not be there but only a certain few days depending on depending on the wind yeah and really it makes sense to pay attention to bedding areas rather than you know travel or of course there's different times to focus on different things but the a bedding area is the is the hub of a wheel so at any given time that is the spot he's going to be the most and if you know those locations it's much more easy or much more possible to start predicting how he might be moving out from within that core spot it's a lot harder to start from the outside and try to figure your way in um, yeah. So so, yep. he, so here's what I want to do. I want to try to break down this a little bit more with an example. Um, but I want to start like really high level and then drill in. So let's talk about the buck nest. But <laughs> let's first start like how. What I'm curious about is how do you find a quality piece of public land? How do you start scouting a piece of public land? How do you determine where the best places are within that? piece of public land and then we'll start to talk about hunting it actually so with the buck nest example if, if you're comfortable talking about that can you can you talk us through first you know how do you find a spot like that how did you figure out hey this is probably a spot worth spending some time on and then we'll drill from there well what's interesting is i think most people have access to spots similar to that um you know maybe the, maybe it's not iowa buck nest where there's five you know four or five year old bucks running around but if you're hunting in missouri for instance and your and your target buck is a two or three year old buck you've got areas like that around i mean there there's not just one necessarily buck nest quote unquote that we have found there's lots of other areas that 
set up just like that um, that probably have similar situations. Now, whenever we went into that specific property, it's a few thousand acres in size. So the, the first thing you do is lay out the public map of the area. And then you start figuring out where all the access points are. Um, start looking at where the pressure is. So you're looking for boot tracks. You're walking those access trails. You're you're looking for you know tape in a in the tree marking um, tacks. Anything that's going to mean mean hunters is what you want to stay away from for the most part. Um, so you you're taking that map and you're crossing off a lot of it. But you you can't um, how do I put this? You've you've got to keep an open mind when it comes to every inch of that public piece. So if it's a couple thousand acres in size and you cross off a lot of the access points and uh, areas most likely to uh, to harbor hunters, then you still end up with quite a bit of land that uh, may be untouched. And a mature buck, the interesting thing with them is they will go wherever they don't ever encounter humans. I mean, sometimes you'd be surprised it may only be 30 yards off a gravel road. There's nobody goes there, and they have that wind advantage on a specific day or whatever. Like, they may well bed there and and spend a lot of time right there. So, and that's really, that's kind of how the buck nest is. That area gets hunted. A lot of people think, when they watch the buck nest video that uh, that area doesn't get a ton of hunting pressure but it's actually the opposite if you watch the second video in that video blog series you'll see hunters walk right underneath the stand um that night when they're headed out but uh there's tons of hunting pressure on that piece it's just one little small out of the way area that those bucks bed in and there's a couple other ones like that on that public area as well so the I guess the point there is is don't overlook don't overlook anything really. I mean, the more you learn about the more you learn about buck bedding and how they use that wind to their advantage and stuff is going to help you decide which one of those areas you're going to spend time in, but don't overlook any single one of them. I mean, I've made that mistake already in the last few years is just walking by open hardwood hills to get back to the thickest, nastiest spot possible when, in fact, that buck, that biggest buck on the property may be bedded in those open hardwoods. Um, if he is set up in the right spot with just a little bit of cover, and that's another thing that, that folks miss, it does not take very much cover to back for a buck to feel comfortable. I mean, it, it can literally be a couple of multi-floor rose bushes with a dead log laying in front of it in the middle of wide open timber. He can bed up against that little patch of thick cover and look downwind. And if that's an area where nobody ever goes, it's possible that he may bed there. Yeah. So don't overlook that. Don't ever overlook that stuff. Um, Is you know, it, it, it may not be like the buck nest where there's five of them that stand up out of there. Sure. That area itself is, is a couple acres in size, and it sets up really well for buck bedding but you have just as much success in killing them in those other areas that may only have that may only have one or two yeah you know they may only be able to hold one or two bucks now was there was there anything that you saw when you're looking at this property like before you set foot on it like when you looked at it on a map and we're, we're looking for these pieces of public land and when you saw this 
did you say, well, okay, it's a couple thousand acres. It's definitely worth taking a look at. Or was there something else that's, that, that made you say, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, what I'm, I guess the larger question I'm getting at is, is there anything I can look at digitally beforehand to say, yes, this has potential or no, this is not worth spending time on? Yeah, I should get more specific into that. Like you mentioned, um, if you, if you take that piece and you, and you look for the edges of it, you look for the areas that are hard to access, and then you look for the overlooked spots. You you kind of measure up each area to the next one. So the spots that we avoid are those chunks that are accessible from all sides. We don't, and we don't. I wouldn't say we necessarily avoid them. We just don't prioritize them as high as some of the other areas. You know, if there's an area where you can only access from one side of it, it's a huge block. You know, it's going to take some serious legwork to get to the back of it. Then, then those are the ones that we're spending the most time on. You know, those back corners, a lot of times up the boundary lines are are good. The ones that require you to to you know cross a creek or whatever. We're always looking for access barriers. You know, or, or areas that are harder to get into. But with that said. A lot of times, those and anymore, it seems like people are are getting braver and they're going back there that far. Well, they may walk right past the spot right next to the parking lot. That's pretty dead gum good, and we do we do see that. So I think sometimes people try to think too big whenever they look at those big public areas and they look for they try to find the biggest public area possible and then look for the farthest back corner of that big area, and we do the same. But don't overlook these little 30 and 40 acre chunks that have one access point where you can monitor hunting pressure. If you drive by that thing a couple nights a week and you don't see a truck parked there at that access point, there's probably a couple of good buck bedding areas on that piece. And and the one advantage those little those little areas like that is that they uh, a lot of times they have private land around that may not get hunted as hard. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take much. Um, Obviously, it doesn't take much hunting pressure on those little areas to push them off, but it also doesn't take much of an absence in hunting pressure to bring them back on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Those little honey holes very often, like to, exactly like you said, they get overlooked because people want the big, wide-open areas that they think they could you know, find some tucked-away place, but sometimes the tucked-away place is actually just a small property that everyone thinks the same thing. So you're, you're, yep. you're spot on, I think. Now, okay, so... You you identified this several thousand acre piece as a good looking area. Um, you started kind of crossing off different access points or places that you didn't think would be as high priority because of you know ability to get in there. How did you end up finding the buck nest and how did you know that this was going to be a spot or did you did you know it was going to be as good as it was going to be? Um, no, I I found it by a lot of boots on the ground time. And that's usually what happens. We're getting better at it anymore. The more we learn about this, the more we can. Like I said, you gotta, you've really got to research bedding and how they bed, why they bed there. And the more you do of that, the more time you spend thinking about that, the, the easier it's going to be from this point forward. But how I found the buck nest was actually using my old tactics where you just you go to a public piece and you walk the entire exterior. You walk the entire outside boundary, and you basically work in. So 
you, you're looking, you're still looking for the same thing. You're looking for an overlooked spot, or you're looking for an area that that doesn't get much human traffic. And I actually found the buck nest. Let me think when it was uh, 2014, I believe, the summer of 2014. I was in there scouting in June, and I was uh, walking a creek. And I came up out of a creek, and I jumped a giant buck. Um, he was just in the middle of this grass field, and. Uh, you know, he, he hadn't, he wasn't fully grown, you know, antler-wise at the time, but I could tell it was a really big deer. So I, I kept that spot in mind. You know, I, I, I figured, you know, why in the world is that deer all the way down in here? He's mile a mile away from the nearest soybean field, which, as you know, in southern Iowa, that's a huge draw in the summer of the soybean field. Oh, yeah. And, I, and it, was, it was curious to me why he was so far away from one of those when that was where I was seeing all the deer. So fast forward a couple of years we haven't been back into that spot and i'm picking up trail camera photos about a mile from there of several bucks that i want to hunt and all the photos are at night but i was i started thinking more about the optimal spot for a buck to bed and where is a location on this property where nobody ever goes and it hit me i was like man i jumped the biggest buck i've ever seen on this property a few years ago in that in that little crp field back there like so zach and i that night when we checked the camera and we saw we had all nighttime pictures that was and that's a mile away from the buck nest granted we figured uh man they've they've got to be back in there somewhere you know they're coming from that direction they're not getting here till the middle of the night so they're not bedded anywhere close to this camera so why waste any time right here so we just dove all the way in and we went back there and if you'll notice in the footage we don't dive straight into that spot the first night we we sit in observation stand and that's why we're able to watch all those bucks stand up but the very first buck that we seen was the big buck that i've been getting trail camera pictures of a mile away and he was in the same exact bed that i jumped that giant buck out of you know two years earlier wow. in the middle of the summer so what was so what that's what, sort of how we found it Okay, we're going to take a quick break here for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. And if you haven't noticed yet with this segment we've been having each week, the land specialists working for Whitetail Properties, they are just incredible resources. And, you know, whether you're trying to better understand how to start preparing someday to buy property or how to manage property or just how to hunt it, you know, there are so many folks on their team that can help. And today, our producer, Spencer Newharth, is with one of those very land specialists again. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Blake Farah, a land specialist out of Texas. And Blake is going to be telling us about what a potential buyer should be looking for in properties in states like Texas and Oklahoma. You know, I think that it's probably pretty much the same answer no matter where you go, even if it's outside of Texas. You know, the, the main three things I'm looking for in a piece of property, you know, to translate to, you know, as big a whitetail as you could possibly grow in the region really is you got to have good food you got to have good water and you got to have good cover. And, you know, the different regions of Texas offer a variety of those different type of categories. But at the end of the day, if you get a property that has a really good diversity of those three things and has a good balance of all three of those things, you're going to have just an outstanding hunting property. And it's going to hunt differently depending on which region in Texas, obviously, that you're in. But at the end of the day, if it's got those three things, you absolutely can't go wrong. I'd say the one other key factor that I would also plug in there specifically related to Texas is the fact that, you know, the land is going to hunt much larger in Texas, I would say, than maybe other different parts of the nation. 
Um, you've got a lot larger pieces of property. The deer's you know, range, how far they're going to travel is probably a lot bigger. Um, and so, you know, these places aren't necessarily, a, you might find a honey hole here and there, but at the end of the day, you're going to have a lot bigger country to hunt. And, and that translates to the size of the neighbors that you're hunting around you, how cooperative you are with them, that kind of thing. That's really going to translate to the good huntability of a property and overall age structure of the deer, which is probably the most important factor. If you'd like to learn more, and to see the properties that Blake currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Farrah. That's F-A-R-R-A-R. So let's talk about why Why do you think that that's such a great place for all these bucks to be bedded in there? What specifically, other than the fact that it sounds like it's relatively unpressured, um, what else about that area? What's the terrain or the cover? Or what's drawing them there? Well, it's all surrounded by timber. Um trees that you can get a stand in and uh lots of other deer insulate them back there like you have to bump deer to get back to them so if you're not if you're afraid of spooking deer then this style definitely is for you um but with that said this is the one area where there's no trees um and i think that's simply it there's no trees right there so people can't hunt there they won't hunt on the ground Everybody that's in there has got a tree stand on their back or is, is planning on hunting out of a tree stand that they hung prior to that. And it's surrounded on all sides by these big timbered hills that attract quite a bit of hunting pressure. And those hills hold a lot of sign, too. I mean, you can go through there in a good acorn year and there's giant rubs ripped up everywhere. But what, what makes that spot so good is those bucks are bedded right next to water I've noticed that a lot. They love bedding next to water or in very, very close proximity to it. It can be a big body of water, a lake, a pond, a creek, a river, whatever. They love water. They love being close to it. And like I mentioned, there are no trees. Once you start trying to figure out how to hunt those bucks in the buck nest in October, it becomes really hard because you just can't get within a couple hundred yards of them in a tree stand. And they just don't, they, uh, I, I think that's why they're there is because everybody's walking around the edge of that, that, that CRP field and they're hanging in those trees, uh, or, or way up in the big timber where they're finding a lot of that sign, but nobody's actually going down in there or, or they very rarely are. When you look at it, it's just a grass field. You know, there's not really any other terrain change or habitat change other than the grass butts up to a creek. And right there where that edge forms is where they like to bet. And there's no trees along the edge of the creek that you can even get a stand in. Yeah. So nobody nobody ever goes in there. Now, and that's another misconception is is uh, how far away people can be from those beds um, without bumping them. And people walk the edge of that field all the time. I'm talking like 200 yards from those deer. They walk in and out of this public property in that field but they don't ever go go back into that corner because there's nothing that they can hang a tree stand in. So just keep that in mind and think about that for any property that you're hunting. If you're trying to keep the pressure off, even on private land, when those bucks are bedded, they they don't mind you walking 200 yards away from them. A lot of times they don't know that you're there, you know, if you've got the wind right to where they're bedded at. But uh, in this situation, they people walk and, and hunt the heck out of that timber line that's 200 yards away from those bucks wow. but 
it keeps them out of there. Those, the lack of trees does. Interesting. So, so I, I've seen, I don't think I saw every one of your guys' video blogs hunting back there, but I've seen, I think, most of them. Um, but for those that haven't seen that, can you walk us through your, through the series of hunts <laughs> that happened last year as you guys were trying to figure this out and trying to have a successful hunt there, what you did and what your thought process was as you made those adjustments? We basically, um, I already told you how we started there was, um, you know, backtracking those bucks after getting the trail camera pictures of them back to that location. And uh, that initial hunt was set up by all the prior scouting. That's so crucial. You've got to walk these areas. You, um, you got to spend a ton of time out there. Uh, just getting familiar with how the terrain lays, if nothing else, figuring out how you get in and out of those areas, you know, efficiently is, is a huge deal. But after that initial hunt where we observed from a distance, we watched those bucks stand up out of the beds. We started plotting ways to get in there tighter to them. Now on, on the next hunt, we actually went in and we set up about a hundred yards from the beds on an exit trail where the the first night we sat there we watched one of the bucks walk right underneath this little tree along the edge of the field so we went down in there and we we uh popped up in the tree and it was a windy day i don't think we'd have been able to get two stands in the tree to film it if it would not have been windy that was a that was a huge deal because the wind was blowing so hard we were able to get up in that tree quiet and uh and kind of over top of that field where those bucks couldn't hear us or see us as we were getting set up. We went up the back of the tree, got set up, and uh, I was doing my interview and I was pointing back there at the at the willow where I thought they were going to bed. About five minutes after I did that interview, they both stood up right there. That's and they awesome. were 100 yards away. Um, that night, we didn't get a shot. We had a, a nice younger buck that was bedded close to those, to the mature bucks come by underneath us, but the mature bucks stayed just out of range. I think they got about 60 yards, but that was as close as they as they got. And ideally, I would have liked to have been set up closer to them, but there was no tree. So the next time, we just kind of we left the stands in the in the truck and said, "To heck with it, we're going in there on the ground with ghillie suits on." And there's a little waterway that runs down through the middle of that grass, and uh, the grass is too tall to shoot through if you're standing or crouched, but that waterway is just short enough then it forms kind of a little edge there. The deer like to walk out of their beds down this waterway to uh, hit another patch of timber. So we set up along the edge of that waterway with ghillie suits on trying to trying to kill one of them, you know, leaving their beds. And that night we got about 50 yards from them in their beds. But they uh, they stood up and uh, actually had another buck get up out of a, out of a different bedding area to the I guess it'd be north of us about 50 yards away and he came by first the problem was is that he wasn't a buck that we wanted to shoot we could have killed him but um, we weren't hid well we were just in the edge of that grass there and uh, he kind of busted us a little bit and took off and the, the mature bucks were out in the field I, I caught a glimpse of one stand up and kind of start moving away from us just feeding out there browsing on on stuff but uh they didn't really ever even spook when that deer spooked but they definitely didn't come that direction they eventually just kind of worked off the other way if they would have got there first it might have been a different story but we took that chance you know we swung and we missed and uh then i think 
our last hunt in there was in late November and during the rut and Sean and Zach saw a pile of bucks in there running does and just couldn't get one close enough for a shot during the rut like that they weren't in the actual bed go back in there to that security and there was a handful of bucks in their honor and they just you know with the chaos the rut they weren't able to get one close enough but we tried multiple things to get in tight to those bucks and kill one it just didn't work out i'm hoping that that uh we can get back in there again this year and maybe uh maybe do something with them but every time we sort of changed our strategy and we got close we just didn't quite close the deal as most of you know with bow hunting that happens sometimes it does (laughs) so so what's the game plan then this year did you do any additional scouting anything in the off season to try to to put yourself in a better position this year or you just taking what you know and you're going to try a few different hunting tactics no we did more scouting and i found a tiny little tree out there that if i was hunting by myself i think i could maybe pull it off or, or not just me any of the guys were hunting by themselves they could but because we're filming it's going to be tough however if we get another one of those high wind days it's a tree that's you know i don't know maybe five inches wide and i think we can get a couple of uh stands in it and if we are if we're able to we'll we'll be shooting 20 yards to a scrape that's located about 60 yards from the bedding which is which is ideal um, that's right where those bucks headed the very first night we sat there. They went right to the point of a uh, little island out there to work a scrape. And if we can get into that tree without being busted, we'll be in a in a great great spot to, to kill one. I just don't know if we if we can get in there without getting busted. If we're going to get seen in the tree as we're setting up, or if uh, if the tree is too small to afford us enough cover, it, it kind of depends on who the first buck is that shows up. Yeah. Um, There's so many of them in there, that's the problem. If a, if a younger buck comes in first, then uh, they may blow the whole deal. But Yeah, yeah. a good problem to have, I guess, being yeah. so many bucks oh, yeah. in there. <laughs> um, yep. So here's a question I have uh, related to when you go in there, when you go in to hunt. You mentioned that you hopefully will have a windy day to go in there and hunt. A lot of times when we are hunting maybe some private land that we know there's not going to be other people on it, like I know Bill lots of times will time some of his best, you know, move into some of his better spots when he gets that cold front or some type of condition like that he wants in that type of situation before he dives in there. On public land, when you're dealing with a lot more hunting pressure and other people going in there all the time, are you still going to wait for those conditions like that or do you have to get in there early and as soon as you can because, you know, other people will start messing these things up if you don't. Uh, we usually dive right in. Um, we've scouted most of these areas. We've we've scouted the heck out of them, and we know where most of the bedding is. On uh, and some of them we're more familiar with than others. The spot, the buck nest spot in particular, we're very familiar with because we've spent so many years hunting the immediate area. And what we noticed after we started putting more pressure on those bucks is they didn't leave they just i mean they would eventually filter out the very first day there was a ton of bucks in there but the next the the next few times we went in there were fewer and fewer bucks and then i also noticed that i started picking them up on different parts of the area on my other trail cameras you know at different times of the day 
I started uh, picking up one of them, I remember, in daylight in the middle of October that we saw the very first night at the buck nest and uh, never saw him back there again for the rest of the fall. And what I think happens there is they are eventually detecting us from where we're in there hunting them, but all they're doing is moving a few hundred yards, and it's not really impacting the way that they're moving or behaving other than they're changing bedding areas. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And then maybe... and that's what that's what we're seeing a, a lot of places too. Like we we dive right in to your point because of the added pressure. But you know, on public land, if they're dealing with that much pressure and you still can't push them out of there, I don't. I think a lot of folks on private land that are hunting super careful are almost too careful. You know what I mean? Right. Because they have they have uh, so many bedding areas and sanctuaries on their property. If we're seeing bucks move, but not pick up and leave the the country, I mean that every situation is different, like we talked about earlier. But um, that is one thing that we have noticed a lot is they just what they detect that you're there, they'll just go to the next best spot. Yeah. Speaking of different bedding areas, did you find with the buck nest was that wind based at all? Did you find them there on a certain wind, but not on others, or was it it was this was just such a great spot or the only really good spot that they were there regardless of wind direction no it was wind based um for the most part i hunted it was mostly a uh, a westerly wind um a northwest wind or a west wind was best for that location i hunted it a couple times on the south and we did see mature bucks but they weren't in many cases they weren't right there in the same beds they were in the general area you know but they might have been bedded a couple hundred yards away from that exact spot. Gotcha. The advantage of that location is we can get an observation stand and we can watch the whole thing. And on those south wind days, they weren't right there in those beds by the willow tree. I'll just use that as a marker. But, yeah, I mean, on the, on the northwest wind days, they were there. Gotcha. Every time. And that's going to differ, you know, spot to spot. You just gotta You just got to scout it and and try to think inside out like you talked about earlier with the wheel yeah yeah you mentioned earlier with this spot in particular the fact that you would have to bump deer getting in there there's a lot of deer in between however you had to get in and this bedding area um with that being said i still know that you guys do take some particular care when it comes to access i remember watching one of your videos where you guys waited an extremely long time after the deer moved through after dark and then didn't get back to your truck till like 1230 at night um can you talk about yep. your access situation on this and the different ways you found to get in and out of there with at least minimizing the impact you're making yeah well that's that particular situation you're talking about we actually had a one of those bucks in the buck nest come in bed right underneath the stand <laughs> crazy he was laying there he was he actually came in right after camera light and it would have been it would have been right after the end of legal but i could see him he came in and he laid down right there so zach and i sat up in the tree and we were thinking to ourselves like can we wait all night and then <laughs> you know maybe yeah but we we sat there for a few hours and we got to thinking like nah this ain't we got to get out of here you know we just didn't want to spook him but eventually yeah. we heard him get up and kind of meander off um, and, uh, I don't know if he was, he could have been within 30 yards of us when we climbed down, but it took us about an hour to get from the stand to the base of the tree and then sneaking out of there. So yes, we are very cautious about 
entering and exiting those areas, but mainly just really close to the bedding. Um, when we got to go somewhere that's a mile, two miles back in, we don't mess around for the first, you know, two thirds of the trip. But when we get in there really tight to the bedding, we, we're going at a snail's pace. I mean, you're stepping over twigs, making sure that you don't snap them. You're waiting for the wind to gust so that you can move. Some of these areas in timber, like if you're hunting hardwood timber, for instance, and you're going into a bedding location, you want, you want it to be windy and wet is ideal. And uh, if it's not, if you're going in for like an evening hunt and the leaves are crunchy and it's pretty calm mid-afternoon, you're, you're just not going to be able to get real close to those, those bedding locations because they're just going to hear you before you get there. Um, but we do. We, we go in a lot of times in the middle of the night almost, like uh, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm a pretty firm believer in going in for morning hunts way ahead of daylight because I think deer can see you better at gray light than they can when it's dark. And uh, and, and getting our stand set up, you know, uh, about 30 minutes before that gray light even hits and using those headlamps that we use. That's, a, that's another big thing um, as far as access goes. When it's when Every single hunt, we use those headlamps in and out. And we're always waiting for the cover of darkness before we're uh, going in or, or, or going out on an evening hunt. We're always going in in the dark in the morning. Yeah. And I think that has, has something to do with, with our success. That's what I did that morning that I killed the my buck last fall. Are you using we like, a, like a red or green lens headlamp or something like that? Or, or what specifically are you using there? Yeah, we're using one of the... Uh, Cabela's uh, Princeton Tech headlamps, and uh, the one I, the one we've all got is the green beam that switches to the brighter white beam. But the green, I definitely don't think they can see it if it's uh, pitch black dark. And to be honest, I think they have a heck of a time seeing the white beam. Um, I just, I'm not real certain. I, I, I did a podcast not long ago. And, on this and and trying to research more about deer vision and that sort of thing but from my experience I've I've had deer close enough to touch in the dark with these lights on if you're in a spot where you know you're not making a lot of noise and you're you've got cover they'll walk right by you where I know for a fact that ain't going to happen during the day you know they're going to pick up and they're going to look at you um, especially at gray light um gray light is that that's the time when you want to be set up or almost waiting in your truck to walk in i don't i don't think you want to be walking in at gray light in most situations i just every time we do that with the headlamps on or without them we get we get busted it seems that's when deer are most active and and i think that's when they can see the best it's my personal opinion i mean but we always use darkness to our advantage if we can yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. I always try to get in there super early in the mornings and set up. Um, and especially when you're in a situation like I think you guys are in most cases, and, and many times I am too, and that's when you're setting up, when you're running gunning, when you're setting up a new stand or two stands in your guys' case, um, right then for that hunt. Um, and that's a challenge in the morning in the darkness, and that's a challenge you know, in the middle of the day when you're setting up for an afternoon hunt. Uh, can you talk about some of the things you guys have learned about how to hang and hunt 
in a somewhat efficient way without spooking deer? Any tricks or specific methods you guys have to get in there uh, without blowing it all up? Well, you got to make sure that all your gear is sound, um, soundproof before you go in. And like, don't just, don't just kind of half-ass your sticks onto your stand. You know, I mean, yeah. don't, don't just wrap them around there and then have them clanking and falling off and everything. Really take the time to make sure everything is fashion, fastened and secure. If you've got a good set of straps because you've got to be comfortable in that last little bit when you're getting to the tree with that stand on your back and it can't be making any noise. I mean, they, there's lots of little products out there that you can use to help dampen the sound on your stands. Um, stealth strips are one of them. They're really cool little product that you can, uh, you can put on like your platform. Um, uh, you know, your, your seat bar and everything in case that you have a buckle clank against that or something, you want those stealth strips on there to dampen that sound. Yeah. Um, and then we use, we use those, uh, those rope can sticks, those climbing sticks with the ropes from muddy. And that is a huge advantage. Having something with fewer buckles, anything with the less metal, the better for the most part when it comes to getting, when it comes to your gear, you know, and, uh, and those go up very quickly, very quietly without uh without any metal on metal contact we're always trying to avoid that and and really it sounds like a huge chore to hang two stands and all that gear in the tree it's not that hard it's just time consuming because there is two of us there so we have a we have kind of a little system you know one of us will go up we'll hang the initial stand and then the next guy will send the rest of the stuff up so that you're not going down and back that sort of thing but having a good lineman's belt uh lineman's rope is probably probably like the number one thing when it comes to hanging a tree stand by yourself or with somebody else for that matter you need a lineman's rope to go around the tree so that you can lean away from the tree and use both hands to get the stand up it is just it is so much easier to do it that way if you're going to be serious about doing any amount of hanging and hunting you want a lineman's belt of some sort or lineman's rope very true. Speaking of the of yeah. the of the ropes too, I a hundred percent agree with what you mentioned about the muddy sticks. I really do love that rope cam system. That is to your point, it's it's super quiet. It's a little bit lighter weight too, I think. And just anything anytime I can eliminate the chance of that metal on metal contact, man, I'm gonna do it. And that that's a huge because I feel like there's other sticks I use too, and I like other sticks, but you've got those buckles swinging around. If by chance it comes off somehow or when you try to get it all set up, just any little variable you can put in your favor, I like to do that. And that's one piece of gear that, while there's lots of other good options, when I have my, my that's my number one set of sticks. If I have to go into the best spot and all my sticks are available, I'm grabbing the rope sticks because it's just one more thing I don't need to worry about. So, Yeah, they go in and come out with us every time. Yep. Those rope sticks do. And most of the time the stands come in and out too. Yeah. Um we we usually hunt out of just the same two muddy stands all year. Yeah. You know, we may have eighty trees picked out, but pretty much ninety five percent of the time we're hanging and hunting. Yeah. Uh, now speaking of stand locations and stuff, um you know, we talked a lot about the buck nest and we've talked about some of the different things, you know, hunting these buck bedding areas. Um 
I know a lot of people, and I think a lot of your hunts that we've been talking about have been taking place in October around buck bedding areas. But once we shift into November and those rut phases, um, are you still keying in on those same types of spots, or do you guys have a different rut strategy for your public parcels? Um, for the rut, we, we, we are extremely mobile. And mobile does not just mean standing six on your back. That means checking out tons of different public areas. So in the rut, we've already scouted all these areas. We kind of know where the deer like to hang out or whatever. But what we'll do, especially in the early part of the rut, is we'll just drive around and monitor pressure. Or, or we'll hang, we'll have trail cameras in late October in spots that are set up to monitor hunting pressure. And some of those do get stolen, as you can imagine, on public. But we want to monitor where hunting pressure is at during the rut as much as possible because that's when hunting pressure is at its highest point. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really drill on that. During the rut is when hunting pressure is at its <laughs> highest point. So that means if you find a spot where there's no hunting pressure, guess what's going to be happening right there? Yeah. Those bucks will have pushed that estrus doe in there, and they're going to have her corralled in that one spot where they haven't been harassed. And you can have some insanely awesome hunts during the rut on public land. That pressure works to your advantage. Most of those most of those folks are just bumbling around the woods or whatever, um, you know, hunting the sign, the big timber. Um, in our situation, there's a lot of non-residents, and I would I. That should, that's wrong for me to say they're bumbling around the woods because they do have a lot of success. Most of the situations we've had with non-residents, they're pretty uh, hardcore skilled hunters that, that do very well here. But the advantage we have is that we know these properties so well and we can bounce around and see which parking lots are getting the most pressure. I mean, we spend more time looking at entry roads for fresh tire tracks. We'll take a rake or a foot and we'll brush the dirt over the end of that road before we leave and then check it again in two days and if there's no new tracks over that spot where we where we sort of rake the dirt over we know nobody's been there in the last couple of days and it doesn't take much in the rut Uh, like i said the absence of pressure earlier the absence of pressure in the rut if you just have a few days where there's an absence in hunting pressure it can really benefit you i mean those deer will move right in there and uh and at times if we if if we just can't find a place that's not getting hammered or or if it is even if there's a lot of hunters in there we'll just put a stand on our back and we'll just scout and hunt you know we'll have our bow in hand and we'll move quietly through the woods trying to i mean and, and we're constantly looking for boot tracks and that sort of thing but a lot of times you can bump into those deer when they're rutting if you bump into that doe or those bucks or whatever yeah, you're going to spook them and they're going to move. But if you see them and you see the direction that they go and you have all those other bedding areas scouted, a lot of times you can make a play on them. You can just, you can cup around them and then set up in the area that they, or the direction that they headed. Because, I mean, if you think about it, she's in heat. If you bump a big buck with a doe, she's in heat and chances are he's not the only one that knows. Yeah. So you want to go where she's going. Even if she's running away from you spooked, that's where you want to end up yeah. is in that in that same area. And we, we've had a lot of success doing that as well, just cruising around on a windy day with stands on our back until we bump into some deer and then setting up. Now, other than, other than actually seeing deer, 
what stuff would you then look for otherwise? Do you pay attention to, you know, sign and set up on that, or are you just looking for lack of hunter sign or just a terrain funnel? Uh, other than bumping it, what's going to make you hang a stand? No, we look at doe bedding a lot. Um, we we concentrate on scouting doe bedding at all times of the year, including buck bedding. You know, and one, one thing we've noticed with does is they're uh, – they're much more they seem to be homebodies much more than bucks do bucks are more nomadic at times especially when they're younger but a doe family group will live in one spot for you know a long period of time and you can predict that now if you're hunting that spot quite frequently everybody knows how um ornery those mature does are and how good they are at walking out of the bedding and staring straight up in your tree and picking you off time after time after time. That's because they live there and they've adapted to your presence there. That doesn't mean that they have to walk down past your stand or not stand there and stomp and blow at you. <laughs> so when when we find those doe bedding areas like that, we, we stay off of them until the rut, until we get a situation where we can hunt maybe an edge feature on the downwind side of doe bedding or... Uh, maybe there are maybe it's a morning hunt you might want to hunt entry trails in between uh, bedding and food on a, along a doe bedding area it doesn't necessarily have to be on the downwind side because uh you know that's not always always the case but we are usually associating our hunts during the rut with doe bedding yeah and that makes sense yeah um, I want to hop back to something you mentioned a little earlier ago that I that I wanted to get a little more clearance on or clarity on, which was uh, using your trail cameras to monitor hunting pressure. Can you elaborate specifically? Are you just setting up one camera on the main trail coming out of each parking lot, or how how are you doing that? Um. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a way to do it, and we've definitely done that before. Most of the time, the ideal setup is if you follow that trail in, you, you pull up to your general, your generic public land piece, you know, the parking lot there, and then there's the walking trail in. You hop on that walking trail and you walk back far enough, maybe you come across a scrape that's right along the edge of that walking trail. That's a pretty common thing to find. And when we find that, we'll hang and lock a camera to a tree over that scrape. And you'd be surprised how many big bucks you'll get on that scrape. They'll be there in the middle of the night most of the time because it's real close to the pressure but they've adapted to the pressure or to the human scent on that road and that's why they don't show up there until one in the morning but uh that's what we'll do in the ideal scenario is hang it over a scrape or a trail like that that intersects with the walking trail so we can monitor those bucks in the middle of the night kind of see who's around and we can also monitor who's walking in and out of there gotcha now you got to be you got to be creative when it comes to camouflaging those cameras or they're going to get stolen you know or use a if you use a lock box that definitely helps or if uh what we've been doing more and more lately is using those rope cam climbing sticks and just climbing two or three sticks up in a tree and then shimming the camera so that it points down at that trail and that and that scrape yeah so that it's way above them you know they're on their way in for a hunt most of the time and they look up in the tree and see that camera they may not go to the effort of climbing all the way up there and grabbing it and um, to be quite frank, use cameras that aren't super expensive on public. Those those won't get stolen near as often as you know you you put uh, one of those expensive trail cameras out there, and 
it don't it won't matter if you lock it or not if they figure it out they figure out that's a four or five hundred dollar camera they may come and steal it at some point like they'll make a point of going to the house getting bolt cutters coming back out there and taking it yeah whereas they won't do the same thing with with a cheaper camera and if you do lose an 80 dollar camera it's not quite the same uh not quite as bad of a bullet to take if you lose that 500 so right yep now what about your trail camera just just outside of monitoring hunting pressure um we're talking just trying to understand deer are you just are you doing the same type of thing scrapes and um you know well-used trails or anything else as as far as setting them up or how often you check them when you check them um throughout the season that kind of stuff well we kind of separate that into two categories we call it short-term and long-term trail camera strategy um i'm a huge fan of long-term trail camera strategy what that is is this time of year when we're doing the, our last bit of scouting or in midsummer, you know, July, early August, when we're going into those bedding areas, we're going in there and we're diving in, we're scouting the heck out of those during that time of year to try to figure out our plan for the fall. And then we're not going back in there until shed season. And those are my favorite camera setups. We'll put them in the bedding area. Most of the time when you're in the middle of these bedding areas, you're going to find hot scrapes, you know, uh, you can hang them over deer beds. You can hang them over trails, entering and exiting the bedding area. And we're not afraid to put a camera there in early August and leave it up for the entire fall. You know, and then we'll come back in during shed season, and you can learn so much from that fall's trail camera pictures for the next year. And you can learn more that way on just general deer behavior. You know as a whole maybe not just the bucks in your specific area but you can learn so much about about uh, deer behavior and cross and then check it with the uh, historical weather data from that fall and compare those uh each every day with your trail camera photos and you you'll start to see patterns emerge yeah that help you capitalize on killing bucks later down the road um, then short-term trail camera strategy are the ones that we're checking. The one this is the strategy everybody likes because it's the one that they get to check every week or two weeks, you know. And and those are the ones that I just mentioned, where we hang them most of the time over scrapes. Scrapes are pretty ideal. And the the misconception with scrapes is that uh, we'll hang them over scrapes early in the season. You know, they they tend to travel through those areas still and use that licking branch at all times of the year. Um, they may not use it near as frequently as they do in in October, you know, after the velvet comes off and their testosterone is going up, but they still tend to travel through those areas. You can get a, a scrape or a licking branch scrape area that uh, is in a spot where several trails meet. That's ideal. Yeah. And most of the time, what we're looking for in the short-term strategy there is a spot that other hunters are, are going to be you know i mean we know that the chances of a buck coming by that scrape in daylight are real slim but the good thing with the other hunters and the human scent there is they've sort of adapted to that so they still will come and check the scrape yep. and then you backtrack them to their bedding areas that you've already pre-scouted but those cameras we don't we don't worry about scent control or anything like that and we check them once every two weeks you know just to get a bearing on what bucks are in the area and are you going in there specifically just to check that camera, or are you trying to time it to go with a hunt when you already pass by there, or do you wait for rain or anything like that? 
No, um, we do time it with the hunt a lot of the time. Um, we'll, we'll go buy it with stand on, on our back and a laptop in our backpack or something, and we'll check it and we'll see what we, what's been there in the last few days and kind of see uh, which direction a buck may or may not have been coming from, you know. And really, when you, when you scout an area completely and you try to understand every bedding area, even trail camera pulls where you don't get any pictures of target bucks can be beneficial because that's actually what led us to the buck nest last year. We checked that camera, and we didn't have a buck on there for the last 10 days. And we were like, you know, is it that early October time frame when the bucks are kind of shifting around and moving around a little bit? And we, we thought to ourselves, well, if they're not here right now, they got to be somewhere else. You know, they, they were here during the summer, and now they're not. So that crosses off a lot of those bedding areas in proximity to the camera. Yeah. Really, you learn you can you can learn something from every single tra- trail camera pull that you have, even the ones that don't have bucks on. Okay, we're gonna pause here for our final break of the episode, and a word from our partners at the Whitetail Institute of North America. And if you're planting food plots this fall, hopefully you already have that seed in the ground, or at least have a plan in place. But if not, today we are gonna hear about a great option for you to consider for this fall in your food plots. And Spencer Newharth will take it from here. This week with Whitetail Institute, we're talking to consultant John Cooner about their special blend of Imperial Whitetail Pure Attraction, which will have deer hammering your food plot all season. Pure Attraction is one of our annual forage products that's designed for planting in the fall. Uh, And I would not be uh, overstating it to say that it has brought us a lot of customers. It's dynamite stuff. Uh, There are two main parts to it, and the advertising guys say it's a one-two punch. But basically, you've got early fall, uh, and primarily that's going to be whitetail oats, uh, which is an oat variety that we were alerted to by some uh, some researchers uh, that was so they were doing a grain production trial, and it was so attractive to deer that they had to had to pull it out of the trials. And we tested it, and also found it uh, to be very cold tolerant. That's for early fall. Moves into the later fall. And then uh, the other part of it is the Whitetail Institute brassicas, which come up very quickly, and the deer will start hitting them. Uh, they'll get even sweeter with the first frost of fall. So it's the one-two punch that takes you from fall all the way through the dead of winter. Uh, it, is, it is absolutely one of our, our big sellers. And one of the, the neat things, uh, other neat things besides it being extremely attractive deer, is with the droughts we've been having in the fall, people have realized that uh, the Whitetail Oats, uh, Oats Plus will – uh, will come up and provide a good nurse crop with perennials. And for that reason, we've had folks asking us, uh, can we take the oats and take Whitetail Institute brassicas and plant them together? And the neat thing about this is you don't have to. We've already done it for you, and we've our testing has shown that the ratios in that product are optimum to provide maximum attraction. If you'd like more info on Whitetail Institute's forage products, check out whitetailinstitute.com where they also carry some of the top supplements, attractants, and herbicides available. Yeah. How, how many cameras do you like to try to have on a public piece? I mean, or, I don't know, on a per acreage? I mean, if, is it one camera per public par- property, or do you try to have, you know, one per 200 acres or 100 acres or anything like that? Well, ideally, you'd like to have one per 200 acres, but the, it's just not possible to do. I mean, yeah. if you're hunting various public spots and some of these cameras are three quarters of a mile in i mean your whole life and job would just be checking trail cameras (laughs) 
so what we shoot for is just a one per area on every area we'll try to find a good community scrape that we expect the bucks to be using at night and uh so it's one that we will go in and check frequently and we'll uh will ideally get a lot of the bucks in that area you know maybe only just a picture or two of them but we're not particularly worried about it just as long as they're around we know the bedding areas that they're that they could be using or likely are using so okay. just one per area i would say we probably only run six to ten total okay throughout you know our whole i mean and we've got i don't know a dozen public land pieces that we hunt so about one per okay so zooming out a little bit here i mean we, we've covered a whole lot of different things as far as different parts of the season how you're finding these places how you're hunting these places how you're getting in out um from your experiences so far and then kind of from the outside talking to so many other hunters about some of these things what do you think is is probably the biggest mistake people are making when they either consider hunting public land or when they start hunting it what's where are people getting tripped up there the most you think when they consider hunting it or start hunting it mm-hmm. let me think here probably the amount of scouting time let's say has a has a big deal or a, a lot to do with it um and, and it's, it's possible for you to go in and just hunt an area and have success, but most of the deer that we're killing or getting on, we're not necessarily just walking in there, you know, and picking a spot. The, the scouting is such a huge deal, and not just boots-on-the-ground scouting, but, you know, lots and lots and lots of aerial scouting. That would be the, the number one thing. And, and the second thing would be the typical stuff that you – that you see people sitting field edges and that sort of thing when they look at an aerial photo they'll think well here's a food source there's going to be deer around it and there probably is but there may not be a mature buck around it yeah yeah and and they get intimidated by the pressure have you, you know, found I, mean, I was going to go ask ahead, i was going to ask have you found in all your public land experiences because to your point i think a lot of people assume that if you're going to hunt public land, you're going to be dealing with other hunters all the time. It's going to be a pain in the butt. It's not going to be as much fun because you're dealing with other people messing up your hunts. Have you found that to be the case, or is it not as bad as a lot no. of people think? No, it's not near as bad. Um, we definitely have hunts that are messed up. I mean, it happens frequently. But uh, most of the time it's honest. You know, It's not somebody intentionally screwing you up. you got to keep that in the back of your mind. It's not just you that's out there hunting you're sharing this resource with everybody else and uh once you accept that it actually is pretty cool you know um because you can work together with those guys if you have an open mind um you can especially in our situation we run in non-residents all the time and they they want to know like good places to go hunting because they've been waiting for a long time to draw the tag so why not help them out you know, we have the luxury of living here and scouting it all. So we help them out a lot of times and tell them, give them some pointers on maybe where to try to go. And uh, more times than not, they return the favor and they tell us what they saw and like it helps us down the road. Right. People just have that in 
yeah, people have that misconception that that hunting pressure is is bad and that it can that it can ruin things. It it, it can, but when you really think about archery hunting pressure during bow season, most of the time it's just a it's just one guy going into an area hunting it, climbing down and leaving. It's not like it is in gun season when there's two dozen in a group that are just a wide swath going across you know everything. Yeah. And and for for the most part, uh, in most of the seasons that we have in uh, in the whitetail states, the gun season is pretty short and placed towards the end of the season, most of the time. And and the, like I mentioned before, the pressure, uh, uh, two hundred yards is a long way to a bedded deer. Yeah, so. yeah, it, it's it's a nice situation you guys have in Iowa with that late gun season. Um, I, I know in Michigan or even in your home state of Missouri, that mid-November opener is kind of a bummer. But when you don't have yep. that, you're right. You can definitely take advantage of much less pressure during those time periods. That's for sure. Um, yeah, and the good thing with Missouri is that the season opens early. You know, you can hunt on the 15th yeah. of September, whereas we can only hunt on the 1st here in October. And if you're on this buck bedding stuff, uh, you may find that hunting that first two weeks of the Missouri season is, more productive for you than hunting the hunting the rut really yeah early season is often overlooked that's for sure oh yeah so i've got i've got one final question for you uh we, we've taken a lot of, t- of your time here but you've got a unique opportunity i think in that you get to you know work closely with someone like bill winky who obviously has a lot of knowledge and experience and perspective when it comes to whitetail hunting and then you also have been able to do these things that are different than kind of what bill does these days and, and work with some other people on the public side and, and hunting in this type of different way i'm curious on one hand what do you think is the greatest lesson you learned from bill about whitetail hunting and then number two what do you think is the biggest thing if any that he's learned from you guys or has anything he's thought previously been proved wrong by your experiences <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Um, that, that'd be a hard conversation to have with, <laughs> with me and him, I'd say. Um, yeah, he. I think he said it in an Ask Winky not long ago. He said that those guys kind of do their thing and I kind of do mine, and that's probably true. Um, you know, and we have our opinions and to how, you know, the deer move around on his property because we spent a lot of time out there and he's got his own. Um, but, you know, like we were talking earlier, you don't you don't have to hunt one way to harvest a good buck or to kill deer or do do anything that's the beauty of what we do is you can you can skin the cat a million different ways and i guess uh yeah i don't i don't know how much he's taken away from what we do on what we do on public he told me the other day that he that he would get, if he went to hunt public he would just hang 200 trail cameras around the woods until he started picking up a daylight mover <laughs> i was just like good luck <laughs> you're not gonna have very many cameras in a few weeks <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean that's that just goes along with our with our point that we made earlier in the podcast of you know you you just uh you try to adapt to lots of different methods and and take little bits and pieces from every one of them and and uh, try to sharpen your own skills yeah but any anything that yeah. you've taken from Bill? Oh uh, yeah, I mean his access theories are all are all proven true, um, and that was sort of whenever I was 
first watching Midwest Whitetail, like back in 2008, you know, before I'd even got here, that was one of the things that, you know, as I, that I made a lot of sense with and identified with back in those days, you know, using, using a creek to your advantage or a, a ditch or whatever it is. Um, you know, he's wrote, I think he, he's written a couple of books on that, um, that tactic and strategy. Now here's the rub. Whenever you start thinking about that, as far as bucks bed and how they bed, um, if you if you marry those two strategies together, you start to realize that some of these creeks, some of these ditches are buck bedding. You know, they bed right there in the ditch or right along it. Maybe not in maybe not in in a lot of situations. So that uh, that tactic and strategy still works, and that's something that we employ all the time. But as I mentioned. Uh, earlier if you can uh, if you can anticipate where those bucks are going to bed you're going to know how to get in and out of those areas and then if you use those that creeks and ditches strategy that he kind of coined years ago to your advantage and move around those bucks in places where you can't be seen you can you can definitely get in tight on them and that's yeah. what we're trying to do yeah you you guys just bumped a couple nice bucks out of a creek earlier this month scouting didn't you i think i just saw a video showing that Yep, yep, and that was a unique situation. Like I, like we continue saying, every every place is different and every spot is different. That location, we've been in a drought, as you know, um, not so much in the last week. We've had rain, but back when we were scouting that creek, we were in a pretty severe drought. And when I got to that creek, I noticed it still had water in it. It was the first creek that I'd seen in almost a month that had water in it. Everything else had been dry. Wow on all these different areas and as soon as we noticed there was water in it we started picking up buck tracks in the creek and I looked at Brody the intern who was who was filming with me that day and we both were like you know there's going to be bucks in here probably right on top of the creek and no more than 10 seconds later we crept around the corner and sure enough one got up out of the brush pile he was bedded in the creek and moved off but there was a reason he was bedded there, you know. I mean, it was it was so dry and it was drowning so bad that all those bucks moved right down on the creek. It's hot, so they want to be right next to that water where that uh, that ground moisture kind of keeps the temperature a little bit cooler. And he was in a in a spot up a, up against a brush pile where he could look up and down that creek and he saw us coming. Yeah, I think that brings up a good point, which is to always realize to always ask why whenever you see something whether that be a trail camera photo or an observation while you're hunting or something while scouting it's not enough just to see the thing you also want to ask why and and you just described the why there for that deer and i think that's a great just reminder for all of us to to always take a step back from the observation and then try to understand the bigger picture because the bigger picture is what tells the story oh yeah especially with matured bucks and even mature does like if they do something they're probably doing it for a reason and uh yeah once you start figuring figuring that that out just by asking yourself that question like you said it'll definitely help you yeah well aaron this is uh this has been a lot of fun i know you've got uh stuff that you should be getting to you got scouting to do or stands to hang with the season coming up so we'll let you go um but if people want to stay up to date on all the different things you guys have going on um where can they go online to find everything um, just check it out at MidwestWhitetail.com. We've uh, always got new stuff going up there. I think uh, the first episode just came out. Um, what is, today's Monday, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, 
Yes. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. Just came out uh, today for the this fall. So you can check out everything there on our Facebook page or Instagram. We're always posting new stuff uh, whenever we uh, whenever we get in the field and try to keep everybody kind of updated throughout the fall. So. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to have links on the website for all that stuff. And, uh, man, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Aaron, and good luck this season. Thanks, Mark. You too. And there you go, folks. Episode number 165 is in the book. And before we go, though, I want to send out a big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you got a kick out of our public land discussions today. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.